Stein, welcome back to another episode of Inside Asia. Have you ever considered that the things that are best for you are usually obtained through some form of practice or discipline? Whether learning to play the violin, training for a marathon, or practicing meditation, all positive outcomes are derived through planned and repeated effort. Bad habits, you might say, are the poor cousins of higher discipline. So assuming all it takes is practice to achieve your highest goals, how many of you listening to this now feel woefully deficient? Don't worry, you aren't alone. Type the word discipline into the Amazon search field for books and you get over 100,000 results. All to say that people everywhere hunger for ways to better regulate their lives, but find it difficult, if not impossible, to achieve it. Now what if I told you that one of the best things you can do is to let your mind go free? Relinquishing control as a means of training the imagination is proving one of the best things you can do to relax, restore a sense of calm, instill curiosity, and wait for it, enhance creativity. A wellspring of new scientific research suggests that the overworked mind is a dangerous one. Remember the film The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson? Day in and day out, he worked tirelessly typing away at his novel, becoming increasingly irritable and despondent. Insanity creeps in. It's then that his wife discovers his manuscript. Thousands of neatly stacked pages with one simple sentence typed over and over again. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. The film was released in 1980, and in hindsight, it strikes me as prophetic. We busy ourselves 24-7 with emails, text messages, spreadsheets, and reports. Human contact is becoming obsolete, and COVID-19 and its social distancing requirements make Zoom calls the last step in severing us from our friends and work colleagues. What's left? The imagination, apparently. I'm talking about the science of daydreaming. Momentary opportunities to give your brain a break, and in so doing, restoring the capacity to create in new and unexpected ways. You think I'm dreaming, right? Well, I'm not. Neuroscience holds the proof, and here to assist me in understanding what that entails is Tony Estrella. Inside Asia listeners may recall a conversation we had a year ago when we discussed the science of sleep. In this episode, we take it one step further, drawing the connection between sleep as an essential function and dreaming as the creative output. Embrace dreaming as a practice of sorts, and the results could prove spectacular. Take Paul McCartney, for instance. He heard the melody for yesterday in his dreams and wrote it down. So did the 19th century Russian chemist Dmitry Medelev. He dreamed the periodic table. Where would chemistry be today without it? Somewhere along the way, we stopped listening to our dreams. For centuries, images conjured in our unconscious state informed our biggest decisions. Indigenous people, even to this day, describe the dream state as a gateway to the divine. Science put an end to that. For centuries, dreams were discounted as nothing more than nighttime nonsense. Breakthroughs in neuroscience say that was a mistake. Time to get it back. In the conversation you're about to hear, we re-examine sleep, the importance of dreams, and how that, in turn, stimulates impulses in our brains that enhance the imagination and creativity. Tony Estrella, it's a pleasure to speak with you. We're both in Singapore, but we are in quasi-lockdown, so we are doing this remotely uh, via Zoom. Last time we spoke was about a year ago on the science of sleep and lucid dreaming, This week, we're going to talk about imagination and the creative process. So welcome back. 
Thank you, Steve. Uh, nice to be back and excited to dive into this subject matter, which is uh, top of mind for me. I'm glad you reached out and wanted to have a discussion on it. Lots of exciting uh, research being done in this space and lots of uh, ways that people can learn how to apply this in their day-to-day -day life. I, I'd start first by describing um, what, what do we mean by dreaming. And you know, from our last discussion, I'll start with uh, dreaming as part of uh, our sleep cycle. Um, although I will expand the discussion as, uh, as we get further into this conversation. And the, the science of the mind is the, the broader category of what uh, scientists have been researching in regards to how, why, how does our brain work, how does sleep fit into our lives, um, why do we need to dream. And we've had a, very, a lot of ups and downs in, in the scientific community, making leaps forward, uh, in an understanding of what what happens in our in our minds and in our brains, and I, I describe it as that we're we're at the starting point of where we're really getting into true measurements and metrics, uh, and being able to understand in a quantifiable way what is happening inside of our minds. And if you go to this period prior to that, a lot of what we understood what was happening uh, was more speculation or hypothesis driven, uh, but there wasn't a lot of actual quantification which allowed us to then say, this is definitively what's happening. A big uh, transformative impact in the way that we've been able to improve our understanding of the human ecosystem has been measurement and quantification. Uh, when we look at what's happening inside of the mind and in sleep, uh, the majority of sleep analysis and sleep analytics has come from sleep labs. And you know, that is a, still a fairly recent uh, phenomenon in terms of being able to have the tools required to measure brainwave activity, uh, be able to uh, look at people's respiratory changes as they're sleeping, their heart rate variability. And at least today, it requires fairly sensitive equipment. And if you looked at the number of people who were able to go and get tested, it's actually a very small percentage of people. You, I personally have never been to a sleep lab yet. Um, I would, I'm curious if you've ever been to one. Is that, is that something? Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. And, 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 and the reason why most healthy people don't go to a sleep lab is there's not a lot of them. There's not a lot of beds. There's not a lot of bandwidth. And you know, we hear about um, you know, the constraints of healthcare systems uh, being able to support things like the current pandemic we're in right now. Um, that's that's been the case for sleep science for a while, where the, or the people who get studied are those who get referred by their general practitioners and um, and specialists to say you need to go into a sleep lab for very specific reasons, and you are on a waiting list for months. Um, and, the, and, and Tony, let me back this let me back this up a little bit. So okay. you're talking about the importance of sleep and deep sleep as a precursor to the ability to dream. Right. And we're going to move into why dreams are important in just a minute. Am I, am I correct on that? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, please go ahead. So, so this quantification component, if I, if I give you the quick summary, is you wait months to get tested and to go into a sleep lab. You get this quantification and measurement of your sleep and the quality of your sleep and how much you are moving into some form of a dream state. But because most of the time that you're in a sleep lab, you're there because you already have some sleeping problem. Uh, we are testing a group of people who are, are at one end of a bell curve. Um, and so 
the broader answer to your question of what, why don't we have a lot of information and why have we lost the art of dreaming and understanding is that we've never been able to measure it before. The ideal mm. to really get to a place where we understand what is happening while we dream is to have some simple device which allows us to measure the broad population and measure the, the, and quantify the activities in our bodies and in our minds which show that we are actively dreaming and that the, 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 both the, the physi physiological and psychological benefits of sleep are taking hold in our bodies. Well, well, and there's two parts to this, Tony, right? There's the health implications. So the, the psycho, uh, psychological and physiological benefits of sleep and the importance of dreaming, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. But then there's the, also the movement into the imaginal and the creative. Yes. which is, you know, a, a nice Benny that comes from the idea of, of dreaming and dreaming effectively. And, and I know that may sound funny to some people because it's, it's dreams for the most part are seen as this more kind of uncontrollable, wild, you know, a way to kind of escape reality, wake up refreshed and maybe with a chuckle and on with your day. But there's more to dreaming, both historically and also um, meditatively, I'd say. And, and I, I think we're going to we're going to push into that area just a little bit. But let's First, talk about the importance of dreaming and as it relates to your health. Yes, that's a good question. And I think the, you know, as we moved into this area where there's more measurement and more widespread understanding of the importance of sleep, um, I point to one book as a, as a model for people to gain a, a layman's definition of overall sleep and benefits. And that's Matthew Walker, uh, who is a neuropsychologist, and he wrote a book uh, called Why We Sleep. And it's one, one quote that always stands out to me from, from that book is, uh, sleep is a Swiss army knife of health. When sleep is deficient, there is sickness and disease. And when sleep is abundant, mm -hmm. there is vitality and health. And there's this enormous mm -hmm. correlation between the number of hours you sleep and the quality of sleep that you get, and therefore how well you dream, um, and that link to overall health, that we're just starting to elevate in importance the same way that nutrition and exercise have been elevated in our minds, especially over the last 15, 20 years uh, in, in, the, in a broad landscape of population interventions and prevention. Yeah, yeah, I regularly have conversations with busy executives who are saying, I don't have time for sleep or I don't sleep well, or uh, almost casting it aside as if nothing can be done because I'm too stressed. Yet, it, it, it seems kind of a throwaway in so many ways because if our body is unhealthy or if we're unfit or if we're not eating well, we clearly have remedies for that. But why aren't people taking the uh, practice of sleep more seriously, do you suspect? I personally, as I've had many discussions around this topic, and as you know, I have a fiction novel on lucid dreaming, so that is a great trigger point for me to have a lot of, a lot of formal and informal conversations with people about their sleep habits and how well they dream or don't dream. And what I found both anecdotally through my discussions and then as I spent time with the sleep science community, uh, you know, the, the, if you look at exercise and nutrition, as the comparison. And there's really three lifestyle risk factors that we can manage, exercise, uh, nutrition, and, uh, and sleep. You can do more measurable things with improving your nutrition. You, know, you just change your meals, you can count your calories, uh, you have tools available that really help you to understand what poor eating looks like and what good eating looks like. And the same can, can be uh, said about exercise. You, know, you can use 
devices to measure how frequently you're exercising, uh, how long, and the intensity. And you, know, you don't really have those in a very good way for sleep. And so what happens is that, number one, your people are defaulting to the things that are slightly easier to manage. Number two, sleep is a lifelong challenge for many people. Um, you know, you're, you started as a kid and you had poor sleep, you may never even know what it looks like to get good sleep. You just can't visualize mm-hmm. it. Uh, if you had good sleep at one point in time and you've lost the ability to get good sleep, you bl- there's so many things to blame as to why you're not getting it. And eventually you'll catch up is the, is the quote that many people say. Um, stress, anxiety. Go ahead. Well, no, it's, you, you, it's interesting, but there's also the line of demarcation called the conscious versus the unconscious state. Yep. So when you're asleep, you're not tracking unless somebody, you're wired up to an MRI or some type of uh, technology. I mean, you are not participating, you might say, to some degree. So there's only things you can do in the preparation for sleep and the conditions for sleeping. But once you're down, you're down, right? Uh, yes, that's largely true. I think we exclude lucid dreaming, um, which is this uh, more advanced form of dreaming. You know, it is largely true that once you're asleep, you're, you're subject to the whims of how you've set things up for yourself, which is sleep hygiene, and then what type of sleep environment you have in your bedroom, uh, which is something that you can control. Um, the, the, there is one thing you can actively control, which is uh, allowing yourself the window of time to get a full night of sleep. And that to me, when you talk to, you mentioned talking to busy executives is the one that uh, is to me, having been an entrepreneur for many years and having run my own business businesses, uh, you know, it is a self-fulfilling fallacy that we create for ourselves where, you know, I can quote unquote survive on four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, but is that healthy for you? And that's the question that we, that we have to face and, and look at it in a very, uh, regimented way and decide how important is your overall health versus what you are currently working on today. And, you know, look, mm. our bodies are, are set up in a way where we can be sleep deprived for a period of time and still function. Uh, we've all gone through stages of that. But, you know, that's the same thing as we've gone through periods of eating unhealthy food for a long period of time. We're not exercising. Our bodies will, will adapt. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing something good for our bodies. So it's, it's a conscious thought to say, I will not only create a good environment to sleep in and have a good wind on, but I will give myself that window. Now look at someone like mm. Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos, uh, I would assume he's incredibly busy with his schedule, and yet he has carved out time to have the window to sleep up to eight hours. Um, and there's many examples of other people who've done the same. So that's the one thing you can control. What happens neurologically and why is, is dreaming an important part of both our health and also our mental well-being? Yes, that's a good question. You know, when, when we are asleep, uh, there is a physiological benefit, which is having your body recover. And we've all had really bad nights of sleep and know that when you don't get enough, you feel it. Uh, but on this point of what's happening, happening inside of your mind, there's this connection between your conscious and subconscious mind. And what science can show today is that there are two things that are definitively happening in your mind as you're sleeping. Uh, number one is you are converting short-term memories to long-term memories. And number two, you are regulating your emotions. So those ups and downs that you feel day in and day out, 
That's your body and your mind are going through and regulating that. Now, where dreaming fits in is if you look at uh, a histogram, which is the mapping of what goes on in your brain is based on your brain waves when you're awake to when you're asleep. There's two, two stages of sleep. You have uh, deep sleep and you have light sleep. And there's actually two forms of deep sleep, uh, REM or rapid eye movement sleep and non-rapid eye movement sleep. For the purposes of this conversation, um, we'll, I'll keep things simple and say you want to maximize your rapid eye movement sleep, your REM sleep. And that mostly happens in the last few hours of when you're sleeping. So this goes back to that point that I was saying about carving out enough time to be able to get proper rest. There's a reason that, that the recommendation and studies show that a minimum of six and a half up to eight hours is the optimal time to sleep. Is that because after six and a half hours, you're getting upwards of 60% of your REM sleep. So if you, if you don't sleep enough, you're not getting enough REM sleep and therefore you're not dreaming. And it is during this dreaming phase, during this REM sleep, where those two points I said around your conversion of short-term memories to long-term memories and your emotional regulation takes, takes place. And uh, your, the manifestation of it is your dreams. And I'll give you one example. Uh, have you ever had a dream where you remembered something from your childhood, but it was now in the modern context and setting? Yes, definitely. So a person, a place? Yes, of course. Right? Yeah. So, so I, 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 don't, I haven't seen a scientific study, and uh, I've not been exposed to all scientific studies, but I've had enough anecdotal conversations to, to show that that is an example of your memories colliding. And, and there are different kinds of dreams, just as there's different types of sleep. I mean, there's the big dreams, and then there's the consequential dreams. Like, you know, you, you feel like you're shivering in cold, and you're in a cold climate, you wake up and realize you kick the sheets off. And it's just because the air conditioner is, is uh, you know, is, is, is chilling you. But then there's the big dreams, the, 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 the ones that are mythical in nature, the ones that kind of reach into something at what Jung would refer to as archetypal dreams. Yeah. Can you explain what's happening and, and what those dreams are about and why our minds function that way? Yeah, you bring up an interesting question here when you, you're talking about the role of dreaming, because this is actually where I want to bridge to also including daydreaming into the conversation, um, mm. because there is increasingly more of a linkage between what is happening in daydreaming, especially as it relates to creativity, uh, and what happens when you are actively dreaming uh, and using the same brain waves that you use in your waking mind during sleep. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with a simple answer to your question, which is the, the, the different types of dreams really relate to what stage of sleep you are in, and then uh, non-REM versus REM. Uh, also, it relates to uh, how much brainwave activity is being triggered by the stage of your sleep. And so the more fantastical dreams, the more uh, rich dreams typically are happening when you are uh, in REM sleep. And in REM sleep, you are, can tap into uh, the same brain waves that you have when you're awake. And that's what happens to me when I'm lucid dreaming. But it happens to people when they're also vivid dreaming, which the difference is lucid dreaming, you have two hands on the steering wheel and you're driving the car while you're dreaming. Uh, vivid dreaming is more where you're a passenger, but still aware that uh, you're having a really fantastical experience. Now, when I, if I link that to daydreaming, 
Um, one of the, the things that has been uh, really become prominent, especially in the, with positive psychology as, as, a, as a field uh, that's rapidly growing and, and, and getting more awareness, is you, you use your dreaming experiences to help stimulate creativity, to process complex ideas and information and, there, and, get, and take inspiration from that to resolve a pending question you have in your mind. Now, if you're a writer or an author or a painter, uh, that might come, the expression of that might come out in a very creative format, but it can also be used to help just in your day-to-day -day business uh, life in terms of problem solving, something that you're trying to tackle. Um, as simple as dealing with a business problem that can be solved on the spot or perhaps something that's more quarterly or annual focused. Um, this concept of dreaming and, and being able to tap into both daydreaming and lucid dreaming uh, to help problem solve has become something that people should be aware of as it relates to their creativity. Well, it's, it's interesting, Tony, because, you know, it, you look back, uh, our ancestors and indigenous people, they placed enormous stock in the dream and how the dream informed or guided, uh, or they believed that it was a form of connectivity to the divine, that uh, it was a blessing to some degree or a warning. Uh, and they lived by those dreams to a large degree. Uh, it still happens in some communities around the world. And then somewhere along the way, maybe around the Middle Ages, um, or maybe even Descartes, you know, it knocked that whole idea off its pedestal and empiricism replaced it. And people stopped giving much tribute or attention to dreams as a creative force or a guiding force. Why is that? And, and, and why is now, of all times, is there an attempt to recapture some of that power and importance of the dream? Yeah, so if you go back into history, I would say that you're, you know, if we look at Freud as another example, you know, this dream interpretation uh, approach you know, certainly had um, uh, captured the imagination of people to say, there must be something more meaningful happening inside of my mind uh, and in the, co the collective of, of, of people where these experiences or these memories that are happening must mean something. Uh, there must be something to it. Um, and, you know, that, that falls into, you know, if you look at, uh, if you've read Sapiens uh, or Homo Deus by, um, you know, Yuval Harari, you know, there, there's a lot of study in terms of the role of religion and how um, science has now been become a new type of religion. And that, uh, to me, the simplistic separation between the two is um, religion is more of a belief and science is more about what you can measure. And I think that this is where dreaming has gone, you know, like the tide backs back and forth in terms of its level of importance uh, from a historical perspective. When we were driven as a society based off of beliefs, uh, dreaming had a, had a role and it was important. And, and you know, clearly was there was a belief that there must be something more to it. And then as there were more periods where you can start to measure things, there was now a questioning of what's really happening. Why are these uh, in, in these uh, experiences that are happening in our mind, what are they for? And there's less of an emphasis on a belief system and more about the quantification. Yeah, wonderful answer. And, and I think it's so interesting to watch what's happening now, as you pointed out 
earlier on in the conversation, it's by virtue of technology and science that we're able to understand, uh, parse, and, and unpack what it is to be dreaming, and therefore what effects it has on our mind and our body. At the same time, uh, as science in, in our hyper-scientific phase of our world, you also have this kind of discounting of anything which isn't empirical, measurable, or, or provable. And therefore, people don't give it the regard, that perhaps, or the measure that it deserves. What, what's happening now? I mean, we, we're in this phase where everything we thought to be true is now being questioned. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a pause button has been hit with coronavirus, and lots of people are stopping to say, maybe the world is a different place than what I thought it was, and maybe therefore there are some um, tools and some ideas we should bring to the table to help us rethink, and maybe it's not all about science and what science can show us. How is that playing into this idea of sleep, dreams, and the imagination? Yeah, it's a good question around what, what's been happening recently. Um, I'll, I'll take a step back uh, to a bigger picture, which is the 1960s really was um, an, a momentous inflection point in the way that uh, the study of the mind uh, and this uh, increased focus of trying to balance out an empir purely empirical view with enhancing and expanding uh, psychology um, have come together. You know, from the 1960s to the early 1990s, there was about 9,000 scientific papers written studying imagination and creativity. And that's, you know, if you looked at that over a 30-year period, you know, 33,000 papers uh, every decade. Um, if you then fast forward to the next decade, uh, there was 10,000 new papers that were published around psychological perspectives uh, around imagination and creativity. And if you fast forward to today, there's an explosion that's happened. Um, there's now it's their own and, and a division within the American Psychological Association, which is fo purely focused on imagination and creativity. There's more than 20,000 books related to creativity on Amazon. Uh, and there's new fields that have been established to really focus on imagination and creativity. And I start with that because I think that if you look at what's different and what people are focused on today, Take a look at the broader environment around us. We have technology companies which have transformed uh, the way that we live, whether it's the iPhone or smartphones from Apple, uh, whether it's you know, platforms which allow for cashless societies and communication like we have with WeChat in China. The, this, there's creativity has been at the forefront of what people are aspiring to achieve now, uh, whether it's in video games, whether it's in... Uh, the way that we interact with people or transforming industries, there's now a premium placed on imagination and creativity. And it's reflected not just in the scientific community, but it's reflected in the day-to-day -day person of saying, I would like to be more creative. I would like to be able to tap into that, use my imagination more, and achieve something that I didn't believe was possible because of my influence. And so... What, what's Sorry, Tony, what's spurring that? I mean, where, where, where is, has this just evolved? Is, is it seen as creativity is just um, the opposite side of the same coin of innovation? So therefore, to innovate is to be creative, creative is to be innovative? Or, or is this something which is just uh, educators and scientists are saying, you know, uh, deploying the kind of creative energies in the mind is a nice complement to the more 
uh, process-oriented or organized uh, aspects of the mind. So it's, it's seeking balance. I mean, wh wh where is the energy coming from in this conversation so that so many people now want to explore what it is to be creative and how to develop creative skills? Yeah, personal opinion is I think it's more driven by individuals and consumers because I think that the scientific community alone wouldn't be able to create that much of a broad general demand from, from consumers or individuals. Um, mm. I think that you know, there, there's been enough, uh, enough new changes in our lives in the last 30, 40 years that have started to create an upswell, upswelling of people to want to ex explore their own creativity combined with the role of technology platforms to give people the outlets that get that uh, they can showcase that creativity. So you look mm. at TikTok, you look at YouTube, you look at social media, there's now more of a, a, a avenue or a channel for people to share what they have, they're doing from a creative perspective, uh, whether it's purely creative or it's creative mixed with business or creative mixed with education. And it is served as a, a small impetus to get a large amount of the population to at least take notice. Uh, I do think, though, that despite that, if you were to, to map it out, and this is just a pure conjecture, that the, the broad noise around the, the desire for creativity is probably still being driven by a relatively small percent of the population today. You know, maybe not 3%, but it's not 50%. And, and some of the applications you mentioned, these are to be raise uh, attention to, you know, uh, create a social media influencer uh, positioning in the market. So people are doing things quick uh, and creatively and cleverly just to be noticed. But is there equally an argument for creativity for creativity's sake? In other words, just like people are parsing out or, 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 or a percentage of their day for meditation or for exercise, is there a microfiction or a process of photographing or pursuit or painting or pottery or something which allows your mind and your body to engage to um, experience your world in a different way in order to further the process of being able to be effective in whatever you're doing in your life. In other words, with no expectation that you know that book will be published or this video will be uh, you know screened in, in in Hollywood, just just the idea of being able to do something creatively in order to engage your mind and your body is that there's a reason for that. There is, and I think that another way of saying uh, what you're describing is is it intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation that's driving yes. individuals, right? So. You know, to define that, right, you're intrinsically motivated if everything you're focused on is driven from inside of you. External validation is not the reason you're pursuing a, 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 an initiative or project or activity. It's because you find something hopeful and it's passionate and inside of you, and the outcome is the outcome. Uh, and mm -hmm. the extrinsic motivations really are more measurable. They're, they're competitive. There's comparisons. Uh, you can still derive pleasure and meaning, but they're just two different uh, outcomes. And I think that your point is, uh, I would link this interest in creativity and imagination to the growth in the interest in mindfulness that we're also seeing. Mm. And mm. It, it's, you, they, they, they might sound a little contradictory at first, where if you think about what is mindfulness, right? If you're, if you're a yogi and you're practicing your mindful breathing, 
you're tuning out the rest of the world so you can focus on your breathing. Whereas in creativity and imagination, you actually want to take in the world. So how do you reconcile those two? Well, you can. Uh, mindfulness can yeah. be one of the steps you take towards being more creative. Um, but because they're so they're intertwined, I think that what's happening is you're, I like the idea of what you're saying, someone getting into gardening or pottery or painting, you know, those are activities which slow the world down. And you know, when, when it, it, as we get into a portion of this segment where we talk about what people can do to stimulate their imagination and creativity, that is an important step, is slow the world down. Mm-hmm. And I think both, it's almost like they're, they're twins, uh, you know, maybe uh, twins of different mothers. So the idea is, <laughs> is and, and oftentimes in practicing meditation, uh, the idea is to gently push aside any thoughts that creep in and return to that breath or return to the center. And, and I think so many people who have active minds find this, you know, insanely frustrating. And they ask, well, if it's a discipline, if it's a practice, why can't it be a practice of imagination and creativity? Why do I need to empty my mind? Why can't I fill it with perhaps what appears to be nonsensical ideas that could trigger, you know, something practical and usable? I mean, is, yeah. is, there, any, is there any argument for that? There is. You know, the, the, um, one of the books I've been reading, uh, which I highly recommend to people as well, is called Wired to Create. Um, mm. it's an interesting book, uh, really written around, uh, what, how do you unravel the mysteries of the creative mind? And the, the, the one of the things that this book points out is if, if you're familiar with that book, all I really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten, uh, that yeah. same thing, that same set of philosophy applies to creativity, imagination, and dreaming. You know, if you think I have a five-year-old daughter right now, so I'm very much immersed in the world of what happens in kindergarten. And you know, if you think about what the the science is showing about early childhood education, you want to encourage children to play as much as possible. You can delay having to do lessons and re- repetition on writing and maths. Um, you know, depending on what culture you're in, you know, you know, five seven years old is you know still should be considered a period of play. Uh, and what's happening is your, your point about all this unstructured activity, you know, doing and pursuing what pops into your head, uh, that's a good thing when you're in kindergarten. And it turns out mm. that those same set of behaviors should continue to be practiced when we're adults. Why do we begin to lose it? Does society drum it out of us or do we become more practically minded? Because you do read about uh, the importance of play well into the adulthood. And in fact, playful, creative, curious minds are the ones that seem to um, thrive, whereas others who become uh, more, uh, you know, focused on what's just needs to be done tend to lose the desire. Uh, and and, and there's, there's, there's work that's been doing, that's been done on this. Why, why does it disappear? And, and is, it, is it something personally driven or is it societally determined? Yeah, I, I think it's societally driven in that if you look yeah. at the education systems as a starting point, right? So we talk about kindergarten, let's fast forward, right? Let's fast forward to the typical uh, education uh, day of a, tw- of a 12-year-old, of an 18-year-old, uh, you know, they're much more rigid and structured. And, mm. you know, I think that it, there's been a lot of science and research that's shown that the arts is an important parallel towards helping to maintain creativity uh, and a balanced mind for people 
and you look at the budgets for many schools, they don't actually support arts. If you want to have theater, right. if you want to have orchestras, it's been stripped out for you know many, sometimes good reasons, sometimes not, but it's just not available. And so therefore you're ending up in an environment where there's an imbalance of a focus on measurable progress in your academic career, which then continues societally into what we do from a work perspective uh, where the majority of people who are in uh, careers that are you know, part of a larger cog of a ecosystem, everything is measurable. And so there's not enough time given to take that step back to say, take time to be creative and slow the world down. And some of the organizations which do that well are held in high regard, right? So you look at companies like Alphabet and Google or companies like 3M, places where people are able to take time to create a balance for themselves uh, or should be desired and should continue to be the norm as opposed to the exception. Well, there's the paradox, Tony, right? Whether it's the schoolroom or the office place or the dinner party, um, we know from science and from our studies and from our research, empirical evidence suggests that there's a different way on applying imagination, creativity, play, that benefits both health, psychological, uh, societal, and yet somehow we are defiantly opposed to applying them in our worlds. You, you mentioned education. I think one of the, the all-time watched TED Talks is Sir Ken Robinson, uh, is education killing creativity? And for listeners who haven't viewed that, I highly recommend it. Uh, he argues just that point, that we have the science to show how important it is to be creative, yet our education systems are uh, stubbornly refusing to, to uh, incorporate that simply because it's difficult to fund and support, I guess. There's lots of reasons for it. But it, it, does, it does bring us to, to this, this ultimate point, which is, and maybe bringing us right down to the current situation. You know, in, in the business world, um, yeah, you know, you read a quick uh, pop culture book about uh, be creative in the workplace. You read it, you go back and try a few tricks. But it's more than that. And, and it, it speaks to a discipline to some degree, just like writing or meditation or playing an instrument or practicing a sport. These are disciplines. What disciplines can we think about in order to build that imaginal mus muscle? Yeah, another way to say that is, can creativity be learned or relearned? And uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll give an example for myself. You know, when I graduated from university, the definition of me, I was a, uh, I studied electrical engineering. Uh, you know, I was very focused on the, the maths and sciences that went into that. But, uh, you know, I also had a mental block where, if someone were to go around a room and say, okay, who in this room thinks that you are creative? I wouldn't have raised my hand. I didn't think that way. And I think that's the first stepping stone is you have to have the belief that you can be creative and maybe it's a creative, not in the way that you're a uh, master painter or, or you know, a, a concert pianist, but that you can solve problems in a different way. And one of the analogies that I always like, like to use when I give talks is uh, parallel to space travel and how we are progressing in, in that field from the 1950s where all we focused on was rockets and knew it was rockets to today where we're thinking about, you know, how do we colonize or potentially colonize other planets? Now, the people who are actively making that happen are creative. They, they mm. may not define themselves as creative, but 
the reason that it's an interesting field to study is that you are tackling a plethora of unknown challenges day in and day out. And creativity is an important element of overcoming roadblocks and unknowns to solve what may be a minuscule problem of, you know, how do you make two, two components speak to each other over a long, a long distance to major challenges of like, how do you actually have a breathable atmosphere on a different planet when like Mars? Um, those are a spectrum of different uh, challenges, but they all require creativity. So my first point would be, in order for you to, to instill a belief that you can learn or relearn creativity, uh, find something in yourself that makes you really believe that it's possible. And from there, you can then take different steps. And I, I, can, I can share a few tips around um, what uh, exists out there that people can read to help give them some inspiration. But it does start with that mindset. What, what advice might you give a busy senior executive who's just trying to function day to day to manage through this COVID crisis, uh, feeling more functionally focused versus creatively uh, inspired. What, what are there things that can be done, that can be incorporated to help alleviate some of this, uh, this, this pressure and give people an outlet for a different way of thinking? Yeah, it's a good question, right? So the, this uh, COVID-19 uh, environment that we live in, hopefully it's the last time we have this, but you know, we are in another one. It is actually a gift, uh, if you think about it from a perspective of time. And that, yes, we're inundated with Zoom calls. We're inundated with uh, having to manage um, more difficult challenges than we might have been prepared for, either as a senior executive or just someone who is um, starting their career. Uh, but one of the things that's different is that we now have more, more time to manage. Uh, we don't have commutes, uh, which is you know, something that we have dealt with in the past. Uh, we can allow uh, our minds to wander. And that would be my number one thing that I would say that anyone who wants to uh, take that first step after you've changed your mindset and said, I can be creative, is let your mind wander. Let me give you a couple of examples as to why that's important. Is, and this goes back to daydreaming uh, and even sleeping, which is that you know, if you look at uh, Char someone like Charles Darwin or Virginia Woolf or Beethoven, one of the commonalities that these creative people had was they all walked. They all took time to walk anywhere from, you know, 10, 15 minutes to some of them would walk four hours a day. And they used this time to disconnect from what they were currently trying to solve to let their mind wander. Uh, uh, Nicholas Tesla was on a hike when he designed alternating current, just took a stick and started drawing on the ground and explained it to his partner. And that's what happens. And that's what you could do, right? You don't have to be on Zoom calls. Uh, from uh, you know 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. without a break, you can mm. find a way to give yourself as as frequently as possible. You know, ideally very regularly. But if you're 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 in a busy period and you're dealing with crises, you can't always manage that. But you can allow yourself a bit of time, especially if you're in a place where uh, you're allowed to walk outside. You, you even if you have to wander inside your home for a little bit. But let, just start with walks and let your mind disconnect from what you're currently doing and walk long enough that you've separated yourself from the current challenge, let your mind just drift and then come back and then jump, jump in again. That'd be step number one. And is that just the process of giving your brain a break? 
Uh, or are you suggesting that if your mind does wander, you daydream, you have a creative thought, should you or would you advise coming back and journaling it, recording it, capturing it somehow? Or are they unrelated? I mean, just the very idea of, of being able to relax, imagine, daydream is actually in and of itself the only thing you need to be concerned with. Uh, I'd say practice makes perfect in that you, they, they are related, but they may not feel that way when you start. You know, your, your first you know, month of walking, you may just be constantly in the same mode. Uh, and it might just be that you just need to keep practicing and walking until your brain learns to relax. Uh, and that's the same thing that happens when you're trying to get better sleep and sleep hygiene. It might take uh, several months to be able to actually relax so that you can get better sleep. And there are tools that yeah. you can use to help you, right? So one, if you're walking and you're finding you're not, you can't distract yourself by letting your mind wander, then listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks, listen to something that's not related to what you're currently doing. Uh, you know, there's now um, th this, this uh, company called Calm has come up with sleep stories to help people learn how to retrain their mind so that they can sleep. And, you know, so this, this concept of using stories to shift your mindset, whether it's for sleeping or daydreaming, uh, is in, widely in practice now. So link, link a tool to help you shift your mindset. And then absolutely, yes, journal. Journal, journal what, your, what your new thoughts are. Sketch it out, uh, you know, whatever, whatever works for you. Because you've, those, those ideas that are starting to then flow may start feeling very small at first, but they become very meaningful over time if you have these ideas captured over extended periods. So, so your message is don't squander the time you've been given in the course of this crisis. Uh, the impulse might be to try to do as much as you can, pack your Zoom calls, uh, you know, do more. But in fact, what you're suggesting is maybe this is an opportunity not to do less, but to give yourself uh, a variety of experiences that might unlock some creative ideas or impulses or an energy that you simply um, haven't realized as of yet. Very good summary. And yes, absolutely. That's what I'm suggesting. You know, if you don't, if you don't have to drive because you're no longer commuting, well, guess what? You don't have to pay attention to cars on the road and you can still take that same amount of time and reallocate it. You know, maybe you spend a little more time with your family than you would have because you're not traveling, you're not, you're not commuting, but then take also some time for yourself. And that the, the value that you'll get from that will be immensely uh, beneficial for you in the long run. Tony, I always enjoy our conversations. There's just boundless amounts of, uh, of, of things we could cover off, but uh, we'll save it for another day. And, uh, and uh, I, I just, I say, dream on, keep, keep going. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the work you're doing and, uh, and, and, uh, We'll circle back in, in a few weeks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Assuming the conversation hasn't had the unintended effect and put you to sleep, what do you know now that you didn't know before on the topic of sleep, dreams, and the imagination? It's not a quiz, so let me recap. Tony reminds us that sleep is just as essential to our physical well-being as food, water, and exercise. Yet most people view sleep as a secondary function. You might even say we take sleep for granted, but should we? The brain is an organ like any other. It serves a function that like the liver on too much alcohol or the heart on too much cholesterol, the brain on too much stimulation can become overtaxed. It's the reason why so many people are flocking to meditation. 
Training the mind to find calm through breathwork and mindfulness has offered millions a much-needed reprieve. But if you, like me, find it hard to empty the mind, daydreaming, or what Carl Jung used to refer to as active imagination, can offer another means of a mental holiday without the required control. I'm simplifying here, but the point is this. For too long, the mind has been treated as a biological equivalent of a computer processor. We churn through information and do our best to retain and regurgitate what's deemed important and meaningful. In so doing, we've denied the brain access to other corridors, where seemingly uncorrelated thoughts or ideas mysteriously generate new meaning or insight. The author, James Joyce, famously wrote about the power of the epiphany, defined as a, quote, moment of sudden and great revelation or realization, unquote. It comes with a touch of euphoria, and on occasion, the creative realization can be profound. What's he going on about, you're probably asking, and what does this have to do with business or Asia or anything? I believe it has everything to do with how we live and work and think. As Tony points out, COVID, to the degree that it's given us pause for thought, is a gift. What we choose to do with the time we've been given is up to us. Tapping into our mind's inherent capability to be imaginative, playful, and creative could be just the thing we need to innovate our way out of this global mess. Where to begin? Sleep, for starters. After that, let the mind wander. And if you so happen to dream the big dream, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, try to write it down. You could be the next Paul McCartney. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. We thank you for listening. If you're not a regular listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.